0: Support for mind, body, health, and politics comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Radiant Solar Technology is ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery dot boxes through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs Information at 707-485-8359 and radiansolartech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. A little reminder, when calling in to a KZYX public affairs program, such as Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, please know that the programs are recorded and they may be replayed at a later date, and they may be available for download from our website. They will be on uh, our website for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Now, this is a way of saying that if you call in Uh, what you say on air will be recorded and you may hear it played, and your friends may hear it played, or other people may hear it played uh, in the future. Typically, at this point in our program, um, we do news and notes in psychology and medicine uh, following a brief introduction to our guest, and then we go to the guest. Today, uh, because of the nature of uh, what our guest Robert Whitaker is gonna be talking about. I'm gonna be dispensing, I am dispensing with uh, news and notes and psychology and medicine. Our guest, Robert Whitaker, some of you may remember, was on this program a few years ago talking about his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And the epidemic uh, that he was talking about, he'll remind you of today. His latest book is called Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the enduring mistreatment of the mentally ill. This book has won several awards. Little background on our guest, uh, Robert Whitaker. He's won numerous awards as a journalist covering medicine and science, including the George Polk Award for Medical Writing and the National Association for Science Writers Award for best magazine article. In the 1998, Robert wrote, uh, co-wrote a series on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. His book that I mentioned just a moment ago, Anatomy of an Epidemic, won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors award, a Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Robert.
1: Uh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure being here
0: today. It is definitely my pleasure to have you here today. This topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, when um, when I took my first job uh, as a psychologist back in 1961 at the Laconia State School for the Mentally Retarded and Emotionally Disturbed, I witnessed in 1961 patients being wrapped in sailcloth from sailboats, heavy canvas, and after they were tightly wrapped in the canvas, they were sprayed with ice-cold water, uh, and they were rolled around on the ground and then sprayed again with ice-cold water. I witnessed patients being uh, hit, Uh, they would call them sock tranquilizers, they would put pieces of soap in, in a woman's stocking and swing it and hit the patients with that as a, with the, the sock tranquilizer. I witnessed um, electroconvulsive shock uh, to patients, and uh, and I witnessed the the uh, cells that they lived in. It was uh, it was shocking. I was uh, in my early twenties, and it was uh, it was like being in a medieval torture chamber, and this was. Uh, uh, this was uh, mental mental treatment for uh, for these folks at the time. Um, you wrote this article in the Boston Globe in '98, um, which talked about the mentally ill being given chemical agents which heightened their psychosis. Is that correct? No, that's true. Could you tell us something? By way of background, uh, Bob, what we're going to do is I'm just going to ask you to talk a bit about the Boston Globe, a little bit about the outcome for schizophrenia that you've talked about, that's how it's worsened in over 20 years, and then the, a little bit about the outcome of the poor countries, how they're better than the richer ones. So we're going to do that and then go into a little history of your book and then and then you know the, the bring us up to date. So with that, tell us a little about the Boston Globe, please. The Boston well, Globe article.
1: Uh, yeah, initially this was one of the things we wrote about, so we in that series we were writing about abuses of patients in psychiatric research settings, and one of the abuses we wrote about were studies in which people came into emergency rooms, um, you know, experiencing psychotic symptoms, and rather treat them in a way designed to, you know, help uh, diminish those symptoms, help diminish the agitation. They actually gave them agents that they expected would make them worse, angel dust, that sort of thing.
0: Phencyclidine. that's phencyclidine. yeah. Right,
1: and the idea was that um, they gave them, uh, you know, different agents expected to make them worse, and the idea was that, uh, you know, I don't know if it was angel dust, I'm sorry about this, which was it? It was um, ketamine, I'm sorry about okay. that, it was ketamine they were giving to mm-hmm the, to the, to the patients to make them worse, one of the agents. They also gave them, gave them amphetamines to make them worse as well. And the idea with it from a scientific point of view was that supposedly this would in some ways l- lend some, oh, I don't know, understanding of a possible chemical problem that was going on with the people at the time of their psychotic symptoms. But think about this. You're suffering or or you're struggling with your mind. Maybe it's one of your your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. You take him to an emergency room. You expect you're going to get help for that. Instead, they're running an experiment in which they're giving you chemical agents designed to make you worse, to heighten your psychotic symptoms, or expected to do so. And then if you look at the informed consent forms for those experiments, instead of telling them they were doing this, and by the way, these were funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, um, they were saying, well, we're going to give you an experimental drug that may or may not and, you know help you get better, but the idea was being presented to the person as if this were some sort of experimental medication, and that wasn 't so at all and The minute we wrote about that, my thought was you wouldn 't do this to any other other group of people. you would never have say people coming in suffering from uh, let 's say uh, heart pains and and, and give them some agent to make their pain worse so that was really my introduction into this very odd world of how we treat those you know said to be mentally ill. And then, so that was my that was one of the elements of uh, research that we wrote about in that series. Um, but we also wrote about studies in which they had withdrawn antipsychotic medications from from patients diagnosed with schizophrenia. And at that time, I had a completely conventional understanding of psychiatric drugs, which was that antipsychotics fixed a chemical imbalance in the brain. They were like insulin for diabetes, and absolutely essential. So we said, why would you ever run studies in which you had which you withdrew a drug that was seen as so essential, like insulin insulin for diabetes, we said you would never do a study where you withdrew insulin from a diabetic to see how soon they became sick again, so why would you do it to schizophrenia patients? So that was the second element in that series. Uh, But later I came to rethink that part of the series uh, based on some information I began to find while, while doing the research for that Boston Globe series. And just to, to continue here, so what happened to, with, with the Boston Globe series? Why did I begin rethinking what I knew to be true? Yes. Well, first of all, I came upon two studies done by the World Health Organization, which compared outcomes in three poor countries, specifically India, Nigeria, and Colombia, with longer-term outcomes in the U.S. and five other, quote, developed countries. And each time they found that the outcomes were much better in the poor countries, and specifically India and Nigeria. And they even concluded, and listen to this, that living in a developed country, a rich country like the United States, is, quote, a strong predictor that if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, you won't have a good outcome. So I'm wondering, like, well, why would that be? And then I looked further into the studies that those World Health Organization, World Health Organization research, and after the first such study, the researchers hypothesized Maybe the reason for the better outcomes in the poor countries is that they're more medication-compliant. They take their antipsychotics more regularly, <laughs> so in this, which makes sense as a hypothesis if you believe the drugs are so essential. And then they measured medication usage in the second study, and what they found, much to their surprise, is the opposite was true. In the poor countries, they used the drugs acutely you know, for a short period of time, but they did not keep their patients um, on the drugs long term. So in the poor countries, only 16% of patients were continually maintained on antipsychotics. Where, of course, in the U.S. and the other developed countries, that was the standard of care. So all of a sudden, I was presented with this finding that went against what I had just written for the Boston Globe, which was that the drugs were essential. And yet here in this cross-cultural study, you found better outcomes where they were using the drugs much more sparingly. So that was one thing that began to make me want to know more about this field and and what we believed to be true. And then the second was this. again, when I was doing that series for the Boston Globe, I had a completely conventional understanding, which was that we were coming to understand the biology of major mental disorders like schizophrenia, caused by chemical imbalances. We had drugs that fixed those chemical imbalances, and we even had a new generation uh, new generation of antipsychotic drugs, the second generation that were better than the first generation. So that's a story of a med- medical progress, right up this medical ladder of progress. And then I came upon a study by Harvard researchers, which looked at longer-term outcomes over the past century. And they came up with two conclusions. One, that modern outcomes today were no better than they had been in the first third of the 20th century, long before the drugs came on the market. And two, they had actually declined in the past 15 years. So again, this belied the story of progress that I thought uh, you know, was, was – uh, which I knew to be true. And it, were those, it, was that, it was those studies that made me curious and made me begin to want to inv- get, investigate further about what do we know about uh, treatments for the severely mentally ill, those labeled mad, schizophrenic, and, uh, and, and, and why are we getting such bad outcomes today? And that, that led me on this long journalistic enterprise.
0: So here we have it. You, uh, an investigative reporter discovers that people going into emergency rooms, are being given chemical agents which heighten their psychosis, heighten their mental illness, rather than reduce. He finds out that outcome studies for schizophrenia in the United States indicate that results are worse over the past 15 years than they were in the early part of the century. And furthermore, he finds out that countries like India and Nigeria have better outcomes than countries like the United States. What does this all mean, says Robert Whitaker, and he embarks. So take us on your journey. Let's go back uh, and give us some background. Take us back to 1751, Benjamin Franklin petitions the assembly of, in, in Pennsylvania for a mental hospital, and what kind of attitudes do people have back then about people suffering from a, a, a mental illness, and, and how does, we're going to look at the history of, the, of this and, and how it that informs how we're treating them today.
1: Yeah, once I began investigating this, it became clear to me that to understand how we treat the mentally ill today and how we think about the mentally ill today, uh, history could provide a foil for understanding that and shed light on that. So I decided to trace the treatment of the seriously mentally ill, this is in the book Mad in America, from colonial times until today. And as you note, um, while Pennsylvania was still a colony of of England, um, Benjamin Franklin and others petitioned or decided to open the first hospital in the colonies. And as part of their desire to open a first hospital, they said they would have a section uh, that would take care of the mad, the lunatics running around. And so what did they do when they built that hospital? In the the basement of the hospital, they they basically created a, a number of cells, built a number of cells, Furnish them with straw as if they were, you know, uh, stalls for animals. And once they opened uh, the hospital, the mad would be put in those, un, you know, those basement uh, cells. And there was a window just a, a little bit above ground. And during the weekend or on Sunday, people from uh, Philadelphia could come and, and actually pay a few cents to look at the crazy people in the cells, almost as if they were going to a zoo. Now, what, what's going on at this time? Well, the thought at this time in medical textbooks is that the mad, and remember it's the age of reason, that's the philosophy at the time, the thought is that the mad, by virtue of, uh, of having lost their reason, um, have descended to a lower level of being, and really are sort of animal-like in kind, and that the way to treat uh, the mad is to make them almost as if you are uh, taking care of animals, um, and to instill fear in them, to control them, um, and treat them harshly. The thought was maybe the mad are insensitive to heat and cold, so they didn't need clothes in those cells. Uh, if you can go back to the documents when the hospital opened, they talked about the person who oversaw the mad was a keeper, like a keeper of animals. And he had whips and he had, he had you know uh, shackles, that sort of thing. So at this very early morning moment in the treatment of the seriously mentally ill, we have a conception of them as less than human, as having descended to a lower level of being and that they needed to be treated harshly in order to be kept in line.
0: They were, ca- they were called the, the brutes. Moment. They were called brutes, weren't they? Uh, absolutely.
1: And that, that's a reflection of how they were conceived.
0: And at the time, uh, is it accurate that they were induced to puke? They were given emetics, and they were blistered. Didn't Benjamin Rush actually put some kind of paste or something on them to make their skin blister?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when you—now, Benjamin Rush is remembered today as the father of American psychiatry. Um, he was one of the first very well-educated physicians in, in the colonies, and then after the U.S. became its own country. Um And he 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 studied at a a great medical university in Scotland at the time, and he brought back the teachings from Europe. And the idea was again, uh, you you needed to use medical therapies that in some ways weakened the patient. So if you could give them something to make them vomit over and over and over again, or give them you know make them have uh, in essence diarrhea over and over again, you would deplete them, make them weaker. And in that weakened state, they would no longer be able to be so agitated, or so difficult, or so angry with their keepers. So you see, in the medical texts which Rush adopted in the late 1700s, these a number of therapies that were in fact designed to weaken, um, make them, uh, uh, you know, in fact, sick. Uh, make them very dizzy. They would spin them around and around the and around.
0: Benjamin Rush invented a chair. I read in your book to make to spin to make them uh, spinning and make them weak from spinning.
1: Yeah, there was actually two different things. There was a spinning device that Rush used, but that one was actually invented in Europe. And the idea was you would just put people on a uh, spinning disc and run them round and round until they became nauseous and would throw up and then they'd crawl back to their cell and not bother anybody for a while. Um, What Rush invented was something called the tranquilizer chair. And Rush actually had, uh, he believed that madness was due to a blood imbalance, that madness was uh, caused by um, too much blood rushing to the head. So what did he do? One, he bled his people profusely Two, he poured ice on the head, and then three, he built this chair that was was basically like a toilet seat, and then people would be bound into this chair and kept there from anywhere from four hours to several days, and they would be bled while they were in the chair, and they would be have ice dumped on their head. Now, imagine that you're you're wrapped in this chair for three, four days, and you're bled, and and ice is put on your head. Um, you're not going to be, you're going to be pretty weak at the end of that time. And you are going to be, uh, again, you're going to be quieter by that just because you're going to be so exhausted. And that's what Rush talks about. He says, after a certain length of time, that people become composed, they become quieter, they become tranquil, he said, and he talked about how satisfied he was. And this chair, which you can still see in some museums, was then exported to Europe. It became the first medical therapy, so to speak, developed in the in US and then, and then exported to, to Europe. So
0: you strap now, a person in a chair, you pour ice water on their head, you spin them in the chair, you purge them, you take blood out of their system, you force them to vomit and you blister their skin and then you say, lo and behold, this uh, this is a nice docile person we have here. Wow. Well,
1: exactly, and you know what, I imagine we did a clinical trial of Russia's chair today probably would be seen as effective. I mean, the person would be quieter, would be more manageable, probably would be expressing less about psychotic symptoms. Uh, And we laugh about uh, these therapies from long ago, but if the goal is to make people more manageable and quieter, those early therapies indeed did that.
0: Very unfortunate because uh, Benjamin Rush, who was also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the foremost physician in the United States, went from being a Quaker humanitarian to using these these uh, almost barbaric uh, techniques um, in a misguided fashion because uh, he, he, he certainly didn't start out that way. So he was a believer. And, and I know he ruined his reputation eventually in the United States because he purged too many people of blood and, and, and too many of them died from it. But let's move on to uh, what happens next. Uh, take us forward towards um, uh, after we've now established that, uh, that mental pe- mentally ill people are brutes, they don't have reason, they need to be treated in such a way as to, as to become docile. Take us forward now to about uh, 1812, in the beginning of uh, what's relate- called uh, moral treatment.
1: Yeah, now this is a part of history we, we forget about. I mean, I, th- I think in conventional histories of psychiatry, there is a sense, oh, the, the mad, the mentally ill were mistreated in the past. But then all of a sudden, if you really look into history, you find this era when moral therapy held sway. And what was moral therapy? It was a reform movement that came out of York, England, uh, ushered in by Quakers there. And what the Quakers said was this. They looked at how one of their own people had been mistreated in a mental hospital in England, in Bedlam, and they said this. We don't know what causes madness, but we do know they're brethren. So there's this reconception. They're not animals. And as brethren, we're going to now develop a form of care that treats them as such, as human beings, as fellow human beings like us. And so they developed a a retreat out in the countryside, and the thought was that nature could be healing. And there the people were treated as much as possible as ordinary people. They were dressed, they, they had ordinary bedrooms. They would wear ordinary clothes. They'd have entertainment in the evening. The idea was walks in the country would be good. Gardening was good. Exercise was good. They would feed them four meals a day. They believed in a little bit of sherry in the afternoon. And so what happened? Instead of treating people as animals and holding up a mirror to people as if they were animals, they treated people with kindness and with the sense that these are brethren, and the best we can do is help assist nature in helping people get well and they found a couple of things the resistance of patients the propensity to violence pretty much disappears because they're not being uh, you know treated so aggressively and they found um that many many people newly psychotic and and you had to be really really disturbed in order to get into an asylum in the early 1800s many people with this kind of treatment just got well after 12 months 12 months uh, time in the country, and their psychotic symptoms would abate, they'd be discharged, and many people never needed to come back to the asylum. Anyway, after the Quake, the Quakers in York, England actually pioneered this in the very last years of the uh, 18th century, 1790s, and it gets exported, in, imported into the United States by uh, Quakers here, and we started getting these moral therapy asylums dotting major eastern cities there's one in philadelphia one in boston one in hartford and researchers today who've gone back and looked at their records have concluded that there's probably never been a more effective form of care in the united states so they they found that more than 50 percent of the newly admitted would be discharged within within 12 months and the best long-term study we have that went about 30 years found that something like 50% of first-episode patients who were then discharged never returned to the asylum.
0: And so these, these, these are places that were uh, called asylums, they, they were actually small, homey-like uh, facilities, weren't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're using the word asylum in the, in the old sense of the word as a refuge. Not as a mental hospital, but as a refuge, a time-out place from the sort of rigors of daily life. Yeah, they were—they were—they were, they were, they were um, meant to be small. They were meant to be comfortable. And they're actually often, ha- and the idea, by the way, was that the mad were very sensitive to architecture, so they were supposed to be architecturally pleasing. Um, the grounds were supposed to be architecturally pleasing. People, you know, you wanted uh, sort of different expanses where people could walk. Um, And so in terms of uh, a humanistic, ethical form of care, we can look back to these early um, retreats from 1812 to 1850, more or less, and rediscover a form of care that was, boy, it would be great if we could um, duplicate it today.
0: It certainly would. So that moral treatment, what's called moral treatment actually, nice treatment, humane treatment, homey atmosphere, lovely grounds, that went on for about 40 years, between about 1840 and 1883, uh, and then something happened. Galton, yeah, Galton brought yeah, us eugenics. Tell yeah, us about this, that, please, and, germ, and the germ theory of schizophrenia.
1: So the next big swing in our uh, sort of societal conceptions of the mentally ill does happen post-Darwin. So Darwin writes his Origin of Species in the mid-1800s which tells that species evolve, and although he doesn't really talk about humans, it's, it's obvious that humans evolved. And then his cousin, Sir Francis Galton, picks up on this, and he says this. Well, farmers know to breed better animals. You know, they like to breed bigger pigs and bigger, better cattle and that sort of thing. And if a human society wants to prosper going forward, it needs to take those with good germplasm and encourage them to breed and have kids, and and look at those, identify those with, quote, bad germplasm and prevent them from breeding. Well, that was his idea. He's from England, but it's in the United States that uh, leaders of our society really embrace this idea. So the eugenics, uh, uh, eugenics policy that then gets enacted into laws, it first happens in the United States before anywhere else. And once you accept this idea that a society, in order to prosper, has to prevent those with bad germplasm from breeding, you can see what the society needs to do. It needs to, ident- it needs to begin distinguishing between people it calls fit and then identify those it deems unfit. And you can even read at this time, as America sort of adopts eugenic attitudes, is that democracy is, is a ridiculous idea because, in fact, uh, not all men are, in fact, created equal. Now, once you start trying to identify the unfit, who comes at the bottom of that list? Of course, it's the mentally ill. And beginning in 1896, eugenic, eugenicists in the United States began passing policies designed to prevent them, the quote, the the mad from, from, from breeding. First, what they do is states begin passing laws saying it's illegal uh, or they're not going to grant permission for the insane to marry. So you had to go to your county clerk and say, hey, I want to get married, fill out a marriage license, and then it would be a question, are you insane? And if you said yes, they wouldn't let you marry. The the, the problem, of course, is no one declared themselves insane.
0: You'd have to be be insane to check yes on insane, (laughs) wouldn't
1: you? Of course, no one does that. (laughs) So the next thing was, okay, we've got to start walking these people up and keeping them in hospitals for long periods of time, at least until they pass their breeding years, and you can see what happens. Once these ideas really take hold, and it really takes hold around 1900, people stop being discharged from the mental hospitals, and this is why we get this huge growth in the number of people institutionalized. It's because once you get declared insane or mentally ill, it became very hard to get out because of these eugenic ideas.
0: Definitely. I remember I, I said earlier in the program how was, my first job was at a mental hospital in 1961. I remember distinctly uh, interviewing a man there, who just talked to me just uh, as a peer and i said to him you know i can tell that you're just talking to me quote regular And why are you here he said because they'll never let me out
1: yeah this is i mean you see this in the records it's just tragic people coming in when they're 18 20 22 25 and if you ever do if you ever look at their life stories often they have a lot of you know difficulties that preceded their uh time in, into, in the hospital <clears throat> and then they they never get out. That's
0: yes, it. I also met people at the time who were in the hospital, who were there for 20 or 25 years because their families wanted to get rid of them.
1: Yeah, you have that as well, of course.
0: Yes. So. And then the w- final go, please.
1: thing I was just going to say. Then we began sterilizing the mentally ill too, and that yeah. was deemed constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927.
0: And we started. We were the first country. We had sterilization. In fact, I think I read in your book that 80% of the sterilizations in the United States happened right here in, uh, in California, where I'm broadcasting from.
1: You know, I don't remember the percentage, but California was certainly a leader in this whole uh, initiative, so much so that when Hitler comes to power, power in 1933 and he wants to start a sterilization program in Germany, he actually sends some of his scientists to California to look how, uh, you know, how mental hospitals were doing it there.
0: Wow. So, we're now moving forward into the 20th century with this germplasm theory behind schizophrenia. This is the the foundation for how we're moving into the current notion. This is where we're thinking now that it's something in the genetics. It's something that's being passed on that must be stopped in some way.
1: Yeah. Now the eugenicists did, of course, want to say that people were genetically determined. I mean, the whole point was to identify people with bad germplasm. So, and by the way, this the science of eugenics was really promoted and really pursued as a scholarly activity at some of the best universities in the United States. I mean, Ivy League universities, uh, which of course were bastions of white Anglo-Saxon privilege at this time. But this wasn't some sort of um, Fringe endeavor. This was done at the, you know, in the sort of heart of American academics. And by the, around 1918, I think it was, you could, you, the, there were texts that said that insanity is a single gene recessive disorder. Uh, and the idea, like blue eyes, and the idea was if you get the, the normalcy gene from, say, your father, the insane gene from your mother, you're a carrier, but you'll be normal. But if you get an insane copy, you get an insane gene from father, insane gene from mother, then you're going to be insane. And there's no, no two ways about it.
0: So they're and saying that, 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 uh, that, that insanity is a recessive gene.
1: Yeah, a recessive so, gene, like blue eyes. You needed a, 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 a copy of the insane gene from both parents.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's
1: completely ludicrous. But And there, there was never, of course, any good science behind this. But if you went to st- state and county fairs, in the 1920s, you would find exhibits by the American Eugenics Society that would would explain insanity in that way, and there would be a little. They would have little exhibits that said, like every I don't know, eight minutes another insane person is born, and they would call this a burden on society. And so, by the 1920s and 1930s, uh, this is when we talk about stigmatization of the mentally ill. They were being treated. They were being seen. Were conceived of as a real burden on society, um, you know, and we're spending a lot of money on these people. And there was, even now and then, you would see a little bit of uh, you'd see a book here or there questioning, well, maybe we should just be killing these people. Why? Why house them?
0: So we're going from 1751, where they're they're considered brutes, they're, they're animals, they're in cells, laying on straw and now we're in the 20th century and people are talking about maybe doing away with them there's sterilization going on and then along comes world war ii and uh world war ii brings us bring us forward here about into into uh to hydrotherapy and shock therapy and convulsive sh- therapy and lobotomy, please.
1: Yeah, I think so. What happens in the 1930s when we have this reconception, we have this con- concept of the mentally ill as useless? You see the, uh, a, a number of therapies enter the mental hospitals, which, by the way, are received as these wonderful miracle therapies. We get something called insulin coma therapy, where you'd. Um, Uh, basically, you know, give someone a shot of insulin, so much so they would go into uh, shock by that, and then you'd have to administer sugar to bring them back, Um, But and then you would do this repetitively, but then if you read what insulin coma therapy did, again, what did it do? It made people quieter. It made people, when they came back, they felt grateful to their therapist for sort of reviving them. They were childlike. And then at autopsy, you actually did see with insulin coma therapy, repetitive signs of brain damage with it. But again, what did it do? It made people more manageable, made people quieter, more childlike. It changed them in this way. And that was seen as the therapist as a good form of change. We also got something called metrazole convulsive therapy. Metrazole was a poison that caused, you know, severe convulsions, convulsions so severe that people would break their teeth, or they might fracture bones in their back. Now, as that is introduced, that is also, you see people changing after you had this poison administered, um, but also people were so afraid of it in the asylums, you could just threaten people with metrazole convulsive therapy, and often they would uh, get in line and behave, become quieter. Now, Metrazole-convulsive therapy comes in, and then we get electroshock. And electroshock is initially ushered into mental hospitals because for the same reason that metrazole-convulsive therapy was. The idea was these seizures were good for people, and electricity became a more, uh, an easier way to induce these seizures. But again, when you see the initial reports about how it changed people, it's all about how it makes them qu- uh, quieter, they don't even remember who they are after they come out. They're childlike. Often they, they sort of um, really look to the therapist as, oh, thank you for, like, um, doing anything for me in this childlike way.
0: Definitely. This was an accepted form of, of, uh, of treatment. Ernest Hemingway received a series of electroshock therapies prior to his suicide.
1: Well, that's the thing. As this is done, even though you can read the, the the case reports and they talk about this change of being, that's not how it's being presented to the public. To the public, it's being presented that, for some reason, seizures chase out madness, and these are sort of miracle cures. Um, so you see this is the disparity. At the public level, we see how these things are treated as cures, miracle cures, all of these, metrazole convulsive, insulin, coma therapy, electroshock, are all presented in the 1930s and early 1940s as these miracle advances in medicine that, that that drive out madness, and you only see this other story when you look at the case reports. Well, how are you changing that person? And it's there um, you see this very different story, and then you even see electri- proponents of electroshock saying, well, you know, maybe we have to give people 30 shocks, 40 shocks, 50 shocks, and reduce them all the way to. Sort of permanent, uh, reduce them completely to a childlike level. And then the idea is, after we've done this, maybe a new personality will emerge. Right. And the other thing is that it was recognized these things were known when people were honest, they called them brain damaging therapies. And some people would say, well, you know, with the MAD, maybe some people do better with less brain in operation. And of course, ultimately, this leads to a frontal lobotomy, uh, where we have a Portuguese neur- neurosurgeon. A neurologist, Igaz Moniz, uh, filing reports from Portugal saying that if you destroy the frontal lobes, uh, people are quieted and the madness goes. That gets uh, in, you know, imported into the United States. And in 1940, and by the way, it is treated as a miracle brain surgery. Yes, once it's again,
0: it's a miracle. Prefrontal lobotomy that Freeman brought us it was considered a miracle.
1: Yeah, Walter Freeman is the big promoter of it uh, here in the United States. He'd go around hospital to hospital in summer tours and literally come into a mental hospital, and they'd line up 30, 40 people to have their frontal lobes destroyed. <laughs> but you read in the New York Times, it's like, oh, these people have learned to neatly pluck madness from the brain without causing any you know, bigger damage to the person. There was even talk that maybe the frontal lobes are like an appendix. We don't really need them. So we, uh,
0: excuse me for interrupting, minute, listening to the transition, you know, we go from, from almost waterboarding to spinning to, to puking to purging, taking out the blood to, to now we're, we're on to insulin shock and then electroshock. And now finally, Freeman comes up with the ultimate way to make these people docile, which is to cut a piece of their brain away from the major part of their brain.
1: Right, and it's not just any piece of the brain. I it's mean, the prefrontal is the frontal, lobes. Yes, I mean, this is the part that makes us human. If you look at a chimpanzee brain and a human brain, uh, the the difference is the pronounced frontal lobes of the human brain. It's thought to be the seat of consciousness. This is the part that worries about the future, worries about you know, worries about what we're doing. And yet, um, the mentally ill was somehow seen as not in need of uh, this part of their brain. But again while the press was treating it as a miracle brain surgery, and Igaz Moniz even wins the Nobel Prize in Medicine for it, then you read the actual case descriptions, and they talk about people no longer caring about the world, no longer caring about themselves, uh, content now to sit by the window and watch life go by, almost like a like a cat. Um, and I, I, got, about, I
0: have to interrupt you there, Bob. I'm going to fast forward on something that's going to bring us into... 1950 to 2014, because when okay. you you just described the uh, one of uh, Freeman's lobotomy cases as they no longer care in the same way. I heard you say that, and I'm thinking of this this journalist, one of your colleagues, who wrote an article after he took an SSRI and how he felt so so complacent and he was so happy about feeling so even until he went to the funeral, his mother's funeral, and he realized that he had no feelings whatsoever, and he put it together with the SSRIs. And, 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 and so now we have, I'm using that as an introduction to the next step after lobotomy, which is 1954, and the modern era started with chlor- chlor- Chlorpromazine, I, I stumbled there. Clopromazine, and if you'll take us into the wonder drugs and the new, latest miracles starting there and bring us up to because we've got 20 minutes for, for the chemicals now that make okay, their entrance. Okay, yeah,
1: is we're doing this big, long history. Yes. So in conventional histories of psychiatry it goes like this. There are the battle days, and then clopromazine, which was marketed as Thorazine in the United States, arrives in mental hospitals, and this kicks off a great psychopharmacological revolution, a great leap forward in care. And remember, they're called antipsychotics, as if they're antidotes to psychosis. Mm -hmm. Well, when they're actually introduced, they're actually lauded for uh, causing a change in being similar to that caused by surgical lobotomy. And the people even bringing the drugs in say it's, it's as if the drug causes a chemical lobotomy. But now that is not seen as a bad thing in 1954. That's seen as a good thing. Because surgical lobotomy has just won the, the, the Nobel Prize in medicine, and this changed from an agitated person or someone with wild thoughts into a quieter person, someone who shuffles along and doesn't care, who's disinterested in the world. That's seen as a good thing. Well, it might be a good thing for the people managing the asylum, but is it a good thing for the person? And I think this is so key. Our common understanding is that drugs represent a break from sort of these problems of the past. You go back to the 1950s, and they're seen in a this is a, cont- a continuation of what we've been doing rather than a break. And then what happens is, so they're initially even seen as major tranquilizers. They're called neuroleptics, meaning taking hold of the nerves, and then they get reconceptualized in the public mind as antipsychotics, as if they're antibiotics and antidote to psychosis. And, you know, now we go forward with that and we, we see this new story emerge. All of these drugs fix chemical imbalances in the brain like insulin for diabetes. And if that, if that metaphor is true, that is a story of great advance. It means you've identified the pathology of a disorder and now you have a treatment that is specific to it. But now you look into that science and once again you find that's not true you find that we we still don't know the pathology of depression or the pathology of, of, you know, psychosis. So, in other words, they never found that people with some certain diagnosis had a characteristic chemical imbalance. That's one thing. Two, you find that given that, you can't say that the drugs um, uh, correct a chemical imbalance. Three, you do see incorporated into the rating scales, um, you know, subjective values. So if someone's quieter, um, moves around less, um, you know certainly is less aggressive, all those things are seen as evidence that the drug works in a, in a medical way. but we could take the old view and say, okay, it's causing a change in being, these antipsychotics that, are, that make these people change these people in a way that makes them more acceptable to others.
0: Yes, they're becoming zombie-like, and we can't get away from your original piece of research indicating that people who take these medicines in, quote, developed countries are doing worse than people who take fewer of the medicines in countries such as Nigeria and India, as you pointed out.
1: Yeah, in the aggregate, that's actually, you know, on the whole, that's absolutely true. Um, And in terms of doing worse, there's several elements of this. The people on medication long-term actually are more likely to still be psychotic at 10 and 15 years, whereas those on the whole who go off, uh, you often see a, a diminishment of psychotic symptoms starting around year two, such that over the long term, they're just much, much less likely to still be psychotic. So that's on the target symptom. And then the other domain of functioning is related to, you know, are they employed cognitive functioning, how are they socializing. And you find um, in the poor countries, and also we have research done in the United States that sort of duplicates this finding. In those who have a psychotic episode and then are able to get off the medication long-term, they're much more likely to be employed. They're much more likely to be in school. They're much more likely to have some sort of uh, decent social life and actually, frankly, much, much less likely to be psychotic long-term than those who stay on antipsychotics continuously. And what you see in those who stay on antipsychotics continuously, while there's, you know, there is there is a small group of people who do, do well on them, um, the majority live these quiet lives of, you know, in group homes, desperation. They, they end up often sort of physically ill, um, unemployed you know not the sort of life anyone would wish for their son or daughter
0: and that's on a continuum and they're at the edge of the continuum but let's and and let's talk some about the middle group the the regular people uh, who in this country by the millions are suffering from depression and anxiety and are taking forms of these medications Uh, let's now talk about your, your research into the ssris begin with is there any evidence that you've come across really substantial evidence that people who are depressed have different brain chemistry than uh, than the rest of us.
1: Yeah, no. Of course, the idea is that people who are depressed have low serotonin, and maybe. Uh, and that idea arose not from investigations into people who are depressed, but actually by understanding how drugs, antidepressants, acted on the brain. And just to simplify this, you know, Prozac and the other SSRI's. What do they do? as as by their name says, they block the reuptake of serotonin from the synaptic cleft between neurons, therefore theoretically increasing serotonergic activity, and people then hypothesize, well, maybe depression is due to low serotonin. But what they found is that depressed people, prior to going on medication, there was nothing abnormal with their serotonergic system. But um, the, basically the psychiatric community failed to communicate that finding, which goes back to the early 1980s to the American public. So is there evidence that people with depression suffer from an abnormal serotonergic system? Not before they go on the drug after they go on the drug that's a different question.
0: And by the way folks, the these these synaptic clefts that uh, that Bob is talking about, you know, you picture some wiring in your house and it's running along the baseboard and every once in a while there's a little box, a little junction box and from the junction box wires go out to various areas of the house. And we're made the same way. We've got uh, electrical wiring, and it goes to one of these little boxes, and and then it goes out to other places. And it's in that box where all this little neurochemistry takes place. And it's in that box that you can shut off receivers to stop, to stop some of the chemicals from going out so that they can build up, or you can have chemicals go out more. And that's what we're talking about when you say, um, a reuptake inhibitor it means you're closing off some little doors in that box so the chemicals can't go out and that they can build up inside and basically what we have here is sort of a modern version of 1751 uh, now it's the brain chemistry before it was some other form of their genetics that made them quote different from the rest of us and what bob is telling us is that the brain chemistry their brain chemistry is not different in those of us who are depressed do not have different brain chemistry. Well, then what the big question, Bob, is if you take people who don't have different brain chemistry, have the same brain chemistry as the rest of us, all of us, and then you give them something that's gonna change their brain chemistry, what happens?
1: Yeah, this is the irony of this whole story. Um, So depression was hypothesized, once we understood how the drugs acted on the brain, to be due to low serotonergic activity. So now you go on an SSRI, which ups serotonergic activity in the brain, right? Well, the brain being this extraordinarily uh, you know, neuroplastic organ, it now tries to compensate for the presence of that drug. And what does it do? Since the drug is upping serotonergic activity, the brain actually down-regulates or decreases its own serotonergic activity. So the neuron, that wire that's coming up to the gap, it, start, it starts releasing less serotonin than normal. And then the that the receiving neuron, which we call this postsynaptic neuron, it actually decreases the density of its receptors for serotonin. And you can see why this is. The researchers say the brain is trying to maintain a, a homeostatic equilibrium, its normal functioning. But the irony is that we hypothesize, researchers hypothesize that depression is due to low low serotonin. They found out that prior to going on an antidepressant, you don't have this problem, but once you are on the drug for a longer period of time, you do, so the drug actually induces the very abnormality hypothesized to cause depression in the first place. And now if we go forward with this story about antidepressants, and I think they may be the most commonly prescribed drug in America. Um, You know, in terms of their short-term efficacy, they beat placebo maybe a little bit, but Not for those who are mild to moderate. It's really only those who are very severe. You see a clear benefit over placebo over the short term. But when you start looking at long-term outcomes, what you find time and time again, and you you actually see this worry arise in the research community in the early 1970s, is that people now see, yeah, they get better maybe a little quicker, but then they seem to relapse back into depression more frequently than before when when doctors weren't using antidepressants. And so, as early as the 1970s, you see some psychiatrists saying, I think these drugs are causing a chronification of the disease. People aren't staying well as long as they used to after recovering from an episode. Anyway, we could go through the history of research, but there's a lot of research that now suggests that is so.
0: The 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 Duke, Duke you know, correct me if you think I'm off here, but I thought the Duke University study. Uh, comparing uh, an SSRI with uh, with exercise in the three treatment groups indicated that the SSRI uh, actually decreased it made people worse uh, yeah this
1: is one of many studies that sort of lead to this conclusion but the the Duke study is quite clear for the reason you say I mean there's three arms there's a drug drug plus exercise and exercise alone and of course the hypothesis is we're going to see that it's the drug plus exercise that is doing the best at the end of ten months. Well, at the end of I think it was sixteen weeks, uh, the drug-treated patients were doing a, a little bit better than the exercise alone. But then, what happens in the in the in between sixteen weeks and I guess it was roughly forty-four weeks? Um, the exercise patients, exercise alone patients, continue to get better, whereas those on uh, Uh, drug or drug alone or drug plus exercise, there was a lot of relapses, such that if I remember this correctly, at the end of 10 months, only 30% of the exercise alone group was still depressed, whereas drug plus exercise, it was like 55% that were now depressed. That's right. My point is, in that study, the drug can be seen as acting as an anchor or weighing down the, you know, subtracting uh, from the exercise group rather than be, be, being an added benefit
0: that's right And Duke University replicated that study about four or five years after the original one and found the same thing they published it
1: so that's pretty compel- that's one type of the compelling evidence we're talking about but there's a number of studies like this I think one of the one of the one of the studies that's not appreciated for this is something called the star D study which is the largest antidepressant trial ever conducted 4041 patients this trial was funded by the NIMH, and it was supposed to guide future care. And here were the, the bottom-line results. Of the 4,041 patients, at the end of one year, there were only 100, 108 patients, or roughly 3%, who had remitted, never relapsed, and stayed in the trial for the year. All the others either never remitted, relapsed, or dropped out of the trial. So that's a documented stay well rate of 3%, which is the worst outcome I've ever seen in a longer-term antidepressant study.
0: This from the National Institute of Health. The Institute of
1: Mental Health, that's correct.
0: Yeah, here it is. The most common side effects associated with SSRIs include headache, nausea, sleeplessness or drowsiness, agitation, sexual problems. They go on to say... They're popular because they do not cause many side effects (laughs) this is right from the NIH website I took it off last night so in other words so here I am I take this thing because I'm depressed and then I get sexual problems I get anxiety I'm sleep I can't sleep well I'm nauseated and I've got a headache but I and I'm reading here not many side effects and I start to what's going on with me am I different from everybody else it could make me feel much worse so let's, we've got a few minutes left, very few. Follow the money. What's going on here from a, from a money point of view, Bob?
1: Well, you can see this is, uh, the, it, is, it is a commercial enterprise on one hand. Um, we were spending about $800 million on psychiatric drugs in 1987. I'm talking about the U.S. as a whole when Prozac come to market. We're now spending about $40 billion a year. That's a 50-fold increase. So from a business point of view, that's an extraordinary success. And the other problem we've had is, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, they did give a lot of money to the American Psychiatric Association for various things. They also, beginning in the the 1980s, began hiring psychiatrists at academic medical schools to serve as consultants, speakers, and advisors. And once they do that, those speakers who have such legitimacy in our society, uh, they're not going to be telling us much about adverse effects or worries about long-term chronicity. They're just going to be sort of celebrating the merits of these drugs. Now, there's guild interests behind that as well. Of course, the American Psychiatric Association has to defend its product. But what, So what we see is these monetary interests of the pharmaceutical industry, of money going to psychiatrists, the APA, and the APA's own guild interests that really are intending a story, and the story is of drugs that um, are a great boon to us, a great help to us, a great a, a necessity. And yet, even as we use these drugs more and more, what happens in our society? We're seeing the burden of mental illness going up and up. As we diagnose more and more of our kids, we're seeing uh, all the measures of mental health in kids getting worse. The number of people on disability due to mental illness is soaring in the United States. So when we look big picture uh, from our society of this modern paradigm of care where we use these drugs so commonly, so frequently, um, is that helping our society, um, you know, sort of reduce the burden of, of mental illness? Not at all. It's going the exact
0: opposite direction. But one thing that it is doing, and that is it's making more and more people docile, isn't it? And that's what you said and you documented was going on originally with the mentally ill to make them more docile. And with more and more people in the, in our country on these various zombie medications – we could, we, we're getting more and more to have pe- pe- more people becoming docile and easier to control, and they don't agitate, and they don't speak up for themselves, and then eventually they don't get represented. And what you're talking about here, using the mentally ill as an example, is a, is a, a movement for an entire culture in the direction of docility, which sounds very dangerous.
1: Well, there's no doubt that one of the reasons for diagnosing ADHD is you give them medications that are meant to quiet them, uh, reduce their social interactions. I mean, that's quite clear. Um, as far as the SSRIs, what you do find in a lot of people long term is that they they feel, it's not that they don't feel depressed. it's They feel numbed out. They just don't care as much as they used
0: to. That's right. That's what I mean when I say zombie-like.
1: Yeah, and you hear many, many people after they've been on these drugs, they just, they don't care. They don't care so much about their spouse, their kids, their job. Uh, they say they can't really get interested in a rainbow, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, an and, the ap- sexual di- Go ahead. and the
1: sexual dysfunction is much more uh, common than people realize with SSRI.
0: Yeah, that's one of the unspoken aspects of the SSRIs, the sexual dysfunction. Question. Well, this is sort of gloomy in a way, folks. And what can we do about it? If we can end here on somewhat of an up note, there is one one thing that we do know that's non-invasive, that's not dangerous, that is effective and has been proven to be effective, and the reports are coming in from all over the world about its effectiveness, and it's the least expensive thing possible, and that is exercise. And everything that we know about exercise indicates that it may not be a cure, but it certainly alleviates depression, and it certainly puts people in a better mood. The combination of the endorphins, which kick in after about 20 or 25 minutes of exercise, as well as, as, the, as the, um, the, the change in the mood, because the endorphins will help change the mood. So this is a sort of a plea or a vote for the use of exercise as your, as your form of treatment. It could be walking. Robert, this has been a, a, a wonderful interview, and I thank you so much for coming on the program and for doing the research that you've done, which is so important for 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 my profession and for the for the country at large. It's been a privilege to have you here today. Well,
1: well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much, and thank you for the opportunity.
0: And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, I should say also exercising for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 안녕하세요. <목소리>